This week's Coming of Age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion, Point Click Care. It's through Point Click Care's ongoing partnership and generous support that we are able to host our thought-provoking podcast. Stay tuned to the end of today's episode to learn more about Point Click Care. I believe that this is where we do need our media. This is where we need our political leaders. And all of us as leaders have an obligation to provide hope. And it's through sharing agency, finding a path forward, focusing on solutions, even if they're just incremental steps forward towards a different outcome or a better outcome, that can be restorative. And it gives each one of us more control and certainly that ability to look forward to see the challenges that were coming, but also how to get ahead of those challenges. Hello, and welcome to Coming of Age. We're shaking things up in today's episode as we flip the table. Today, I'll be interviewed by Max Stern, a dynamic communications and media expert who, with his colleagues at Crestview Strategy, has been supporting the Ontario Long-Term Care Association throughout the pandemic with our media relations and crisis communications. Max has since moved to New York to advance his education and has now stepped into a new role with a large healthcare organization that supports seniors. Our conversation provided us with an opportunity to catch up, but also to reflect on our experiences navigating media, responding to the issues raised during the pandemic, and supporting long-term care over the past few years. We share some behind-the-scenes stories of what it's been like during this challenging time, the important role of media, and discuss what changes are needed to care for our seniors now and in the future. I have the distinct pleasure of interviewing Donna Duncan, the CEO of OLTCA. Normally, she would be in my slot. This time, I'm flipping the script and I'll be interviewing her, building on her experience in the public sector and politics, and obviously at the helm of the Association of Operators of Long-Term Care Homes through the COVID-19 pandemic. Donna, I wanted to start with the concept of your role as a translator. So you saw the pandemic from two different vantage points. You both experienced it like all of us, but you also were on the inside. So you were working with stakeholders, with homes, you're working with government on response to all the things that were changing. I think that builds into what we'll talk about later around media and what you wanted to communicate to the public. What what were your reflections from seeing the pandemic from that perspective? Oh gosh, Max, uh, such a such a great question, and and thank you for doing this. So, to your question, though, uh, my reflections from having been inside, it, it, you know, when you're in the crisis, how do you pace yourself when you can see what's happening around you? We had the benefit of intelligence from the Global Aging Network and and through our colleagues around the world. And I I would say that having those discussions and being able to anticipate what was about to happen here, for better or worse, I think gave us 
an anchor that I don't know that we otherwise would have had. What really has struck me is just how much we've each country, but but Ontario in particular, uh, has really been focused on long-term care in, in a complete and total vacuum and, and our province in a vacuum. The pandemic is a global pandemic. This is worldwide. And there is a lot more that we can be doing with other countries, with global partners to bring those lessons learned and support one another in problem solving. We've talked a lot about globalization over the years. And yet when we went into crisis, it became very regional, very local. We didn't have the benefit or didn't learn from what others were doing. Another lesson for me is the bias towards telling stories that advance political preferences rather than the objective reality. And again, that that speaks to the the bigger context of what we were in, uh, including how not only in Ontario and Canada, but around the world, there is profound ageism and our older populations have been shut away, have been siloed, uh, have not been supported. And, and just how the pieces of support for our seniors weren't there and which caused an, an escalation of the impact of the pandemic on our older population. We see long-term care in a vacuum. We're managing ageism. Meanwhile, you have the benefit of learning from other jurisdictions, seeing what's happening in real time. What I found really interesting is your message has been remarkably remarkably consistent and disciplined through the pandemic, but I think it comes from the fact that it, it's rooted way before. So how did you maintain that perspective and remind yourself that it's very clear what needs to happen in the sector and this is a moment to actually shepherd it through and not get distracted? Well, when you're in a crisis, you you always need to be calm. And I, I, I do believe that as an association together with our members before the pandemic hit, we'd done a lot of really deep work to really understand what the structural issues were facing uh the care system and, and support system for our seniors, including long-term care, but, but not exclusive to long-term care. And trying to think about the, the care system within the, the, the broader context of, of society, of the structure of our healthcare system, but also our social care systems. And also looking at uh, the demographic shifts as our, our baby boomers age and need more comprehensive care supports. So we had a foundation. We actually in at the end of January, early February of 2020, uh, before the pandemic got called, uh, we we declared that we were facing a perfect storm uh, outside of a pandemic. We, we couldn't foresee the pandemic hitting, but even outside of a pandemic, we knew that the state of our seniors care um, is, was really precarious and quite fragile. And... So having the benefit of the data, having the benefit of of understanding what the structural issues were and being consistent, uh, I think really helped certainly keep me anchored. So how do we keep anchored in the facts and, and that objective reality and using data in a very purposeful way and keeping it anchored in 
understanding that behind this are, are real people. And I think we lost some of that through the pandemic. There was a big focus on the numbers, a focus on the beds, on operators, on long-term care as if it's this, this self-contained piece. And we lost a lot of the contextual elements. As we think about how we were communicating, always coming back to this is this is what pre-existed, this is what the issues were. And it was only through the pandemic that those issues got magnified and we saw the consequences of those issues. I wanted to pick up on the idea of this objective, reasonable voice that OLTC and you brought to the table every day. I mean, we've spoken about it a lot. I would book you as early as six in the morning. Sometimes you'd be on live at 11 p.m. You know, these are long days. What kept you going, always showing up, ready to talk to media? And obviously, the media we dealt with had, you know, different angles, um, including American media who were like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, The Economist, who were really zeroing in on Ontario to understand what was happening. We also had local um, outlets in Ottawa, for example, like the Ottawa Citizen and others, where you were trying to explain, you know, what's happening in specific communities. So how did you balance that and, you know, make sure that you could break through in such a crowded media landscape at the time? Well, I think it was really important for us to be a knowledgeable partner. Uh, One thing that we as an association have is data. It was very important uh, for us to bring the facts to bear. So while there there were multiple voices and agendas and there was so much emotion, uh, it was important for us to help to educate and be very consistent in that education. As you know, Max, many of the reporters we were speaking to actually weren't health reporters. Some of them had covered sports and and then they'd been brought in to, to cover the crisis. So there was a real education to be had. And that is, that was an opportunity uh, to shine a light on, bring an objective voice and to bring thoughtful information uh, to speak to what was actually happening on the ground and inform it from a public policy perspective, not just a, a really emotional perspective. I I would say what kept us going was um, a lot of adrenaline. Uh, It was crisis response, uh, but also uh, the need to to be in the story. So if we weren't in the story, some of those other agendas would prevail. And we were very uh, clear that that in so many cases, including with some of the line of questioning of the media, we we agreed to disagree. And uh, as we look to what was happening in Ontario relative to other parts of the world, there actually wasn't that much difference between what was happening in our long-term care homes versus uh, care homes in Italy or or France or in the United Kingdom and or parts of the United States. And we certainly saw some tragic losses of life. When you think of media as a tool, what do you think the potential or the impact can be of of using media um, in terms of holding leaders accountable, but also bringing about better public understanding? I know. We've spoken about research around the, you know, what people actually know about long-term care and how their perceptions change as they interact with the system. How does media help kind of bring people along that journey as you look and seek to transform it in such a big way? We are at such a, a profoundly important time right now. Media become 
even more important as we look at the different platforms and we really experience that real shift of uh, you do one media interview or, or we did a technical briefing and, and that could be repurposed to be on social media, to be on blogs, on websites, repurposed for radio uh, or television. And you never quite knew <laughs> what sphere you were going to be in. So the, the reach and the, the way people access information has changed so profoundly. When you look at what's next for the, for the sector and this transformation that you're talking about, how do you make sure, and even when you look back at the pandemic, that you didn't get lost or the, the story wasn't lost in the details and you were always able to kind of keep that forward-looking vision of, of what you're trying to build and, and bring people with you through that? I, I would say that keeping focused on, on the bigger vision, but also what is to come, is a platform for hope. When you've been where where we've been and so many of our frontline staff and family members and residents have been, the, the risk was falling into despair. And we saw so many people um, whose mental health was was seriously compromised, where residents, family and staff members were were traumatized. I believe that this is where we do need our media. This is where we need our political leaders. And all of us as leaders have an obligation to provide hope. And it's through sharing agency, finding a path forward, focusing on solutions, even if they're just incremental steps forward towards a different outcome or a better outcome, that can be restorative. And it gives each one of us more control and certainly that ability to look forward to see the challenges that were coming, but also how to get ahead of those challenges. As an association, governments around the world were declaring victory in May and June of, of 2020 and saying the pandemic's over. And we were making plans and working very uh, intensely with our members on a wave to action plan. We were preparing for the wave to action plan. And, and I would argue that that did give our members something to hold on to. So the, the homes, the leaders, the frontline staff and others with whom we uh, with whom we worked, including residents and families, being able to focus on those solutions provided an anchor that we otherwise wouldn't have had. Therein lies our opportunity today is to keep focused on those solutions and at least think about what that next step is going to be that ultimately will, will lead to something better. And the more we can work with media, media to shine a light on success. So we have more and more homes implementing emotion-focused care models. We're seeing more diversified partnerships with hospitals, including hospitals being embedded in long-term care homes, uh, partnerships between long-term care homes and specialized hospitals for psychogeriatric support for, for those individuals who'd been in hospital but needed extra support to transition out of hospital into another care setting. We are seeing far more uh, innovative approaches in local communities and partnering with pharmacies, with family health teams, uh, with emergency services, community paramedics. There is a movement emerging in this where 
especially on the ground in local communities and in northern and rural and remote communities in particular, where we're seeing far more innovative collaboration and partnership than ever before. In my view, this is this is the path to the future. It's not going to be about traditional architecture of, of a building, of a hospital separate from a long-term care home, separate from a, a family clinic. It is going to be more about how do communities come together and help each other to ensure that uh, the individuals who live in those communities get the supports they need. When we look at media, I'm going to take you back a bit. You participate in so many different types of media, and I just wanted to hear from your personal perspective in terms of breaking through and in terms of having impact, some of your thoughts. You were almost weekly on CTV News Network. You were on CBC where you were syndicated, where you would sit on the phone and every 15 minutes, a different host would call in from a small community across Ontario. You were on background with journalists at the New York Times. Sometimes you were acting as a conduit for your members who were speaking with outlets like Toronto Life um, for profiles. Um, There's so many, but (laughs) there's so many examples. We have those technical briefings that you spoke about. Where did you find was your kind of sweet spot in terms of getting your message across and, and and that can also mean from hearing from people yourself, because I know um, oftentimes you get a little text from someone, oh, I saw you, you know, pop up at, on that TV in that coffee shop or wherever. Can you speak a little bit about that in terms of where you felt you had the most impact in terms of media? As somebody who always consider myself to be the person uh, behind the person who's in front of the camera, I think that especially in the beginning, just getting into it getting on camera was was a little disorienting for me, especially when you're doing it through Zoom and you're just looking at the camera hole in your in your computer. I actually think doing it through uh, Zoom or FaceTime made it easier for me. I, when I think about where the greatest impact, I, I do prefer doing background. And for the, especially for some of those longer pieces, being able to help to shape a story from from behind with the data, with the reports, educating reporters who were taking bigger stories and and working with those. I would say I had great satisfaction from that um, because I am a a policy wonk at heart uh, and I really do care about about the data and and getting uh, the objective positioning right. Uh, And I think we all have a duty to, to get that right. I would say, however, though, that the the television reach and then the reach on social media through those television appearances really had an impact, uh, and including for our members, for family members, for people in communities to be able to give more of a face, a, a tone and approach, create a more of a human element uh, than you, what you would see in a, in a print story or just a, a very static story. I would argue radio, radio helped as well, whether it was on the current or cross-country checkup or, you know, I heard from, from friends in Nova Scotia and BC who'd, who'd heard us and seen us. Uh, I think it, it really spoke to our bona fides as a reputable voice, a trusted voice, whether or not people agreed with us. But I do believe that uh, the, the national media, uh, whether it was radio or television, really helped to, to bring the personal element to it and give us a, a, a human voice, especially at a time when 
There was a focus on numbers. There was a focus on beds. There was a focus on operators and owners to be able to be um, more of a human side, I, I believe, has served us well and, and established us as, as a credible voice and leader. It's so interesting. You're in your you know office environment. You're sometimes I you were booked back to back speaking with different media for television appearances, like being on the agenda on TVO from your webcam. Meanwhile, you sometimes forget like that that's reaching millions of different people. And I think to your point, social media has changed the game where a clip when you put it on social can have another life to it by promoting it that way. You spoke at the beginning around intelligence. You know, you had the benefit of being on the board of Global Aging Network. I know you also serve on a board of a hospital in Ontario. When you look at where you get your information from on the media side, who stands out to you in terms of being ahead of what's going to happen next? It's not reacting to, you know, what's happening today, but where they really have that long-term perspective and they're able to see something coming, which is how I think of what you and the association were able to do through the pandemic. As I think about people like Andre Picard and Moira Welsh, individuals who who are really vested in deep knowledge in this in what's happening in our, our health system or our aging population, the real future focus is actually in the, the larger print outlets where you get more of that in-depth analysis and, and the, the larger retrospectives of, of where we've been, we're looking at the data, but then uh, looking more future forward. So I, I would say, I would say print and also looking at publications like Toronto Life, where they bring the, the human stories to the front, but also the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times with their retrospectives. And I think it's interesting. There's now, I mean, you're, you've completed a first season of this podcast, which is, I think, received almost 25,000 downloads. So there's like this thirst for information on this. And I hope that, you know, these journalists continue to spend the time to tell stories from within and tell that resident, resident first story. To end, I, I mean, this is a tradition that you've done on the podcast. You oftentimes ask a guest if they could have wishes for the future of the system, if they could, you know, have a magic wand, what would that be? From the perspective of media and the public discussion, what are your your wishes and, you know, those building blocks for transformation that are coming into place really, you know, come to fruition? As somebody who's worked inside government, who's, I didn't, haven't run a long-term care home, but I have run a, a large children's mental health organization where we had residential programming, did research and education and trained professionals. And I have worked in a specialized uh, academic hospital, as well as you've said, sitting on the board of a hospital. And I've been on the board of a, chaired the board of a Canada's largest community college as well. So I, I understand how to operationalize policy, but also how to drive change. Where the media, I believe, can be really important is in changing the frame of reference. We are at such a crisis point today with our health human resources, with our, our buildings, access to trades, ability to, to build or rebuild hospitals or long-term care homes. It is this moment where the traditional mechanisms or timelines or processes aren't going to work. It, it takes four years to educate a nurse, five to six years to educate a nurse practitioner, eight to 10 
and, and even longer to educate and train a physician or a medical specialist. We don't have the data right now. We don't know what the gap is in terms of how many nurses we actually need, how many physicians we need. But what we do know is that we are in the midst of a global shortage for health human resources. We know that it will take years to build a new hospital. It will take years to build long-term care homes. How can the media be, be an important objective partner in challenging government, uh, decision makers, uh, leaders in, in across the health system, residents, families, caregivers, challenging each one of us to come together with solutions for today. This notion that we're going to rely on the, the traditional structures to get us through the next four to six years, it's misguided. If we don't act today, the people who are, who are most going to lose are going to be our seniors and most especially our seniors in, in Northern rural and remote communities where we don't have doctors, where the nursing shortage is, is, is gravest, where family members may have moved away and that those community supports may not be there. So how do we reframe the debate uh, how do we challenge us to build processes and timelines to get us what we need today? And whether that's moving from credentials to more competency-based approaches in, in building teams of and, and aligning supports, how can we use specialized services in urban centers like Sunnybrook Hospital or St. Mike's with their virtual emergency departments to support rural and northern communities? It is going to be more about how do we look at what are really fixed assets and specialists across the province and use them better. And, and that may be provincially, but it also may be nationally, but also internationally. And I, I do think that moving to media as a unifying platform, as opposed to a very fragile ecosystem around senior supports is, um, is really the direction where we need to go. We need to find that common purpose, which is not about an us versus them. It's not about cannibalizing one part of the system for another or cannibalizing uh, resources serving one population versus another. But but how do we uh, find that collective and shared purpose? Uh, I would hope that my, through my wish <laughs> that we find through the media and together with media uh, that sense of common purpose and that we really do focus on um, the objective reality uh, and the urgency and that we're able to mobilize to, to do what we need to do today, which is to make sure that we're building out uh, services and supports around our, our aging population where their needs are greater, where um, not all of us are going to be able to age at home as much as, as we wish. The, the reality is that, that far too many people are not going to be able to be cared for at home. So how do we not disregard that reality and uh, uh, make sure that uh, we're doing everything to make sure no matter where you live, you're going to get the supports you need? I think you can make it happen. And I want to thank you personally and as someone who experienced the pandemic um, in Ontario. Thank you for your public leadership. And I'm excited to see where the sector goes next, because I, I do think it's a really exciting time and that everything's going to transform and change. I think even in the darkest days and when everyone was very burnt out, your um, service to the public by showing up and doing media, um, no matter what it was and at what time I booked you at, I think it was really important. And I think those 
outlets and appearances will be really important too, historically, uh, as an archive for, for what happened and what happened very quick here in Ontario and in long-term care. With that, thank you, Donna, for joining the show in a different capacity as a guest. And for listeners, you can find Donna at your nearest local newspaper, or if you flip on the radio or TV, she'll, she's bound to be on a show near you. So um, check her out there. Oh, so Max, thank you for uh, hosting today and for the privilege of being interviewed by you. And as you go on to uh, a new phase in your career, for our listeners, who you work with makes all the difference in the world. And especially during the middle of a crisis, we really had a great team. I felt enormously well supported by Max Stern and uh, his team at Crestview always felt very well supported even when I I had my doubts and my nerves going on uh, on television or or speaking to a reporter Uh, you can be in a crisis with me any day thank you so much Max this week's coming of age episode is sponsored by OLTCA's sector champion point click care point click care is a leading healthcare technology platform enabling meaningful collaboration and access to real-time insights at any stage of a patient's healthcare journey. PointClick Care's single platform spans the care continuum, fostering proactive, holistic decision-making and improved outcomes for all. Over 25,000 long-term post-acute care providers in over 1,600 hospitals use PointClick Care today. For more information on Point Click Care software solutions, visit pointclickcare.com. Thank you for listening to Coming of Age, meeting the needs of our aging population. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, rate our show five stars, and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, I'm your host, Donna Duncan. Keep well.